of Armchair Producers, episode 80. Can you believe it? We've, I think we did about 69 episodes of the GNT podcast. We're on 80 now. We're, Ed, Ed, we're all, all furniture at this point. 69, dude. Um, 69. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's got to be. I think it came up in my Facebook memories recently. I reckon it was about six or seven years ago this actually started, this nonsense. Yeah. Uh, and Kevin Smith is to blame. So if you have a problem with what's going on, uh, he's pretty easy to get in touch with. He's on all the social medias. That's true. That, of course, everyone, as you all know, is my illustrious co-host, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, yeah. sir? I am fine. And Danny, spring has sprung here in Melbourne. And you know you're getting old when spring arrives and you like look out the window on a Saturday, glorious, sunny Saturday morning and go, hmm, it is a good day to dry some laundry. <laughs> that's how exciting my life is right there you look out the window and go oh do some laundry today this is be dry before lunchtime this is gonna be brilliant <laughs> nothing like showing off me undies to the neighbors well i have high fences so i think my neighbors that need to be pretty keen to see my stuff that way if they do see my backyard they can see me doing vr in the backyard <laughs> i probably look very strange that's actually a really good thought in the summer, VR outdoors. Yeah. That said, I have discovered, I think, a problem. There's a reason why it's not done. Yeah. Um, I, I think the sunlight messes with the detection of your handy doobers, uh, um, your controllers. So um, when I'm inside, I, if I'm doing a, a game, it can detect where my hands are very, very well. Mm. But it starts to – the sunnier it gets outside, the harder it, it gets to see your, um, your controllers. So I don't exactly know the tech and how the headset sees your, your controllers, but it doesn't, I think it's involved that the light gets in the way. It's a nighttime only event then. Thank you, but it is nice when you're actually outside and you're like, you're doing stuff and you see a breath of wind and it kind of lines up nicely with whatever's going <laughs> into the game. So like I've spent a bit of time playing super hot VR out there in my oh, yeah. backyard and like occasionally like someone will come rushing towards you and you, you'll get that breath of wind in your face at the time. You're like, oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> That's the next step in VR. I, I've seen uh, sort of videos online of people doing that, sort of like uh, balancing on a beam on off of a high-rise building in VR, and they put sort of like fans on and things like that. Just the way that people react to it is pretty good. Yeah, the, uh, the VR company I worked for very briefly a couple of years ago, the, uh, the Mighty Zero Latency, who are a oh, very, yeah. very fine Australian company, except mm-hmm. for the fact they fired me. Um <laughs> Yeah, that, that was part of the, the game, but one of the games they were running at the time, which was four years ago. Mm. Um, but there was like a beam across two buildings, and you, as you approach that point in the game, and you walked across the beam, a fan on the wall would turn on. Yeah, and people every now and again, um, the, the guy running the game would ask someone to jump off the beam to see what happened. <laughs> the brave ones would do it. it yes, um, it, it, if you could only do that at home, that'd be cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did I tell you that I actually went and did one of their te- uh, beta testing sessions? Uh, I don't know if you did. Yeah. You, uh, you're dead to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, Eric, good friend of the show and uh, love of my life that uh, is not you or so many other people. Um, he uh, got us uh, got us some uh, uh, access and, oh, my goodness, it was during summer uh, last year and oh, those VR suits that you wear – that is not a friendly environment when they don't have air conditioning. Goodness me. But it, um, in a bit of a tin shed, really. Yeah, pretty much. But it is one hell of an experience. It was great, great fun. 
Well, I was there four years ago when I, like I said I worked there for a couple of weeks, and mm-hmm. uh, I was just looking at their product. Going, this is this is incredible what they built here, and the oh, the, yeah. poten- the potential of what they had built even then was mind blowing. And in a way, I'm kind of surprised that four years later they're not a household name um, because they were so clever, and what they built was like next level free roam VR. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was one of those jobs where you came to work and instead of any people would be like, oh yeah, DreamWorks called last night. They wanted to do something together. <laughs> you know, like um, Warner Brothers came and talked to us about that Ghostbusters game thing, and we told them to get fucked. You like <laughs> this doesn't happen. Where does this happen? It happens here. Um, but yeah, it was it was a I was completely the wrong person for the job as a an geek, but um, it was an interesting place to work for a couple of weeks, and I and I can only imagine how far I've come in the last four years. It is expensive to actually do it as a as a paid customer. It is expensive. That's, oh, it is eighty, ninety bucks, I think. Yeah, okay. yeah, and uh, it's it's re- going to retain that uh, that price tag for quite a while. I think it's very much a uh, a luxurious event thing. It's not. I I don't think that they could easily kind of get variations of their setup into shopping centers or anything like that next well, year. They absolutely could because that was their business model. Their business model was not to sell games to people and that you to go about 80 bucks to go play mm. their game in North Melbourne. Their game, that, you were basically, you are paying 90 bucks. You were paying to be a game tester. Um, that was really to bring some cash in the door while they were still getting past the startup stage. Their whole business model was to sell, the whole kit and caboodle was set up mm. to, when I was working there, it was uh, Sega World in Tokyo. Oh, yeah. uh, and now they've got a 20 or 30 places in the world all have, um, VR, uh, zero latency VR service, and they are in shopping centers. Yeah. Well, they're, they're destination places. That That's my thing, and it's sort of like um, it's obviously the last six months have not been uh, good for destination shopping and destination event things. So um, here's that's how it's, it's probably been a downturn for them then, but, I mean, in theory, yeah. you could build one inside – I mean, I suspect there's going to be quite a bit of empty mall space coming up in the next six to 12 months. You would know better than me. The irony of it, actually, because of spatial awareness in those games and because you don't necessarily need to be right next to each other, it would be a great way of social distancing. (laughs) You know what? I mean, you could quite easily wear a mask. Um, We've probably spent more time on my former employee than we had planned to. This week, this week's chain movie, we should just move on with the share. Yes. you chose this week's chain movie, and I, I think the actor was a, a fair way down the cast list. He played a sniper. Um, what's mm. his name again? Um, yeah, Song Killer. Song Killer. He was play. It was in um, the, the interview which we watched last week, and we've now moved sideways into the nineteen eighty one Australian Peter Weir Mel Gibson classic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, this, for anyone who doesn't know, and I think there's probably actually a fair few people who might not know this movie and even know this the real story of kind of Gallipoli. If you're outside Australia, that's certainly possible. Um, yeah. If we mean uh, our Russian bots may not be familiar with it. Um, Canadian uh, bots. Ukrainian bots. Uh, I apologize. It's like calling an American a Canadian. Oh, no, 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 no. Not Ukrainian. Canadian. Canadian. Sorry. Yeah, I heard that wrong. Yeah. Canadian. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I did. I did try and explain it to Canadians once. I assume the word got around. There aren't many of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so you're right. If you if there's anyone listening locally who doesn't know the story, then 
Wow. Interesting scenario if, if there's not many Aussies who uh, who don't know Gallipoli, considering it's one of the real iconic moments of Australian wartime. You think it, that's it basically, oh, absolutely. I mean, I would say it's, it's Australia's founding myth um, okay. is Gallipoli. Um, I don't want to get too much into politics. Why do you say the word myth? Well, I mean, in a way, it's because it's become bigger than an actual event. It's like everything sort of links back to it. It's almost like the nation, the moment the nation gelled into becoming Australia. I mean, a bit of background for people who aren't Australian or don't know the story. I mean, we Australia only federated and became Australia from being all the separate colonies in 1901. Federation mm. came into effect uh, January 1st, 1901. Uh, and so Australia was only... 13 years old or thereabouts, um, 13, 14 years old when the First World War started. And, you know, Australians nominally, you know, had fought in the Boer War in mm-hmm. South Africa, but Australia didn't exist at that point. So this was really First World War was Australia's first foray into into a, you know, a, a foreign entanglement mm-hmm. um, since, since Federation, really. And um, so a lot of Australians track back that, that from uh, sort of, that gelling moment where everyone sort of became, you know, Australian to to the Gallipoli campaign in mm. 1915. Uh, I get shot down by saying I've never been as massive fan of the, the, the Gallipoli such Anzac myth, but mm. um, in a, in a way, it's become it's become bigger than a, the actual event because mm. if you look at from a historical perspective, the event itself was nothing happened. Um, really, I mean, it, it was a stalemate, right? We, we yeah. kind of lost. It's kind of like Americans looking at Vietnam going, yeah, we kind of won. You're like, yeah, no, you didn't. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it, it was a, a, a sideshow in, in World War One in, in, in Turkey that had no strategic significance at all. But um, So, yeah, in, in a way, like Americans now, you look at Americans have their founding myths, you know, the George Washington stories and, you know, mm-hmm. Paul Revere writing into the night, the British are coming, the British are coming. Why do I, why do we, we all know these stories because they slam it down our throats in this film yeah. and TV. So if Gallipoli, if, if we were, Australia were the Americans, if we had the cultural, you know, clout of America, everyone would know Gallipoli. Gallipoli would like mm-hmm. be the revolutionary war of Australia. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to be more referring to the myth um, of sort of like it was solely the British that told the boys to go over, and it wasn't that wasn't necessarily the case. Well, that does speak to 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 the strength of the film in the sense mm. that the story told by Gallipoli isn't necessarily the truth. Mm. Um, it's, it's which is not exact... unusual in war movies or in movies. Period. Right. I mean, yeah. you, you know, there's a there's the truth. There's the truth. Um, <laughs> And Peter Weir's version of the truth has become so universal in a way. It's been so successful and so um, famous in Australia that the, the, the version of events described in the film Gallipoli mm. have basically come to be accepted as the reality. Yeah. Can we take a step back for the people who don't know what's going on here? Two yeah, Australian, absolutely. The, 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 the film synopsis, two Australian sprinters face the brutal realities of war when they were sent to fight in the Gallipoli campaign in Turkey during World War One. Mm. I won't bore anybody with the details of why they were sent to Turkey, but the British decided to fight in Turkey, is long story short, uh, and the Australians were basically sent to support the Australians mm. and the Kiwis from New mm-hmm. Zealand were sent to support the British in that battle in Turkey. Um, and it became 
as I sort of said, an incredibly important founding mm. moment in Australian history. But if you do see this film, do take it with a grain of salt. Mm. It is um, an, exaggerated, an exaggerated version of a truth because, like, mm. no Australian ever got went broke or became less popular by sticking the boots into the British. <laughs> that is so true. My personal favourite element of this movie is kind of going back to you referring to the Gallipoli event as being potentially like the, the real gelling point of Australia is the opening sequences where we see almost like a secular element still of, of the, the, um, the States and how, the, um, how uh, uh, Mark, Mark Lee and um, Mel Gibson are kind of conscripted into, into the army or choose to, to do it. Um, that kind of slice of Australiana was really fascinating to me. And um I thought it did a really good job of kind of depicting a very unusual side of the conscription uh, into into war because it is a side of the war that we have seen in many many movies, various versions of it, like even to to the comic book variation of Steve Rogers kind of being that weak little guy trying to get in and faking his way in and all of that stuff, which kind of makes light of it a little bit. Um, that said, he does also say, I've got just as much right to defend my country as anyone else, blah, blah, blah. So it is honourable. But um, the kind of Australian, the way that Australia was, and still so fresh, as you say, uh, from being founded into one nation, it's, um, it, I just found it a really, really socially interesting element of the story that I had not personally seen in any other war movies uh particularly at that time period. I didn't pick you up on something here. I think you said the word conscription. Yeah, sorry. My 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 mistake on the conscription. There well, was no conscription. Yeah. There was actually a vote, a referendum on conscription during mm. the First World War, and it lost. Uh, soldiers themselves voted two to, two to one against mm. um, voting for conscription. So little historical fact for you. Uh, mm. Yes, I am a history nerd. Um so we have our two main characters in the story that we follow. Mm. We follow um, Archie, uh, played by Mark Lee, and Frank Dunn, played by Mel Gibson. Mm-hmm. Archie is a extremely promising young sprinter. We mm-hmm. meet him and his uncle, um, and they are training to, you know, uh, for a, for a, for a meet coming up. Mm-hmm. At that meet, we meet two. They are two different words. At that at that running event. We also meet Mel Gibson, who's um, from a, a big city of Perth, who is up in the Kimberley, who thinks he's got a, an easy mark. He puts his money, he puts a bet on himself to win this race mm. and, and is beaten by Archie. Mm. Um, at, at that sort of uh, Archie harbours dreams, despite the fact he's uh, uncle's insistence that he has such a great future as a runner, he harbours dreams of, of signing up to join the army. And you sort of pointed it out. We, at the end of our um, running event, we sort of see the uh, the uh, recruiting uh, guys turn up at the at, at the uh, the sporting oval and to sign yeah. sign people up to join to join the armed forces. Yeah, and it is a really it, you're right. They do actually um, really portray it in an interesting way. Mm. Both the uh, the idealism of, of people to join, mm. um, and we see a couple of different angles on it. We see Archie's uh, you know his desire to to want to go and fight. 
and and defend his country. You know, defend his country. He sees us defending his country. Yeah. Um, and we see I forget the other characters' names. Uh, Billy, Snowy, and Co. Are yeah. Working on the railway with Frank at one point, and they're all down to sign up. And it's sort of almost their desire to sign up. I felt like, well, on the one hand, it was somewhat patriotic. It also felt like, well, this job is shit. It's a decent, you know, yeah. like it's almost because their 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 um their place in the world was pretty lowly, and the army almost seemed like a step up. Yeah, yeah. Um, Frank initially is reluctant to to sign up. He doesn't want to go fight and mm-hmm. die in a, in a foreign in a war British war. Um, one of my favorite scenes in this film is this. Um, uh, you know, Archie tries to after Archie tries to join up in the Kimberley up in northwestern Australia. They say, "No, you're too young. He's, mm. he's not of age yet." Um, so Frank and he decide to go down to Perth, where he thinks he'll get away with signing up a little bit easier. Mm. In doing so, they get they get sidetracked. They get on a they try and hop a train that lands in the middle of nowhere, and mm. end up having to hike across the Salt Lake to try and get uh, get out of there before two weeks is up. Um, and there's a great scene where they, I think we actually talked about this the last time we saw this film on the show. Mm. They they meet a stockman uh, who is crossing the uh, with his camel across the uh, Salt Lake at the same time. Yeah, it helps yeah, him out, yeah. and he they stop and talk to him, and he's like, you know, they're telling him, "Oh, I'm going to go join the war." He's like, "What war? The war in yeah, Europe?" Yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, you know, um, but my favorite line, one of my favorite lines in Australian cinema, is comes up, and he's like, you know. Well, what you know, we're going to go fight in Turkey. Or why? Why are you fighting in Turkey? Why are you fighting Germany? He's like, well, mm-hmm. we don't stop them there. They might end up here. And he just looks around at this bleak, you know, yeah. sun-drenched Salt Lake. Nothing around. He goes, and they're welcome to it. <laughs> it's it's a great bit of I, I from as as someone who is um, a an expat, I guess technically, um, it's that particular kind of interaction it's quintessential australian a- attitude is like we're, we're the arse end of the world we know what we've got there's only limited areas where we have it the center of the country is nothing who wants to come here <laughs> one of my one of my great his I, I love um speculative fiction um and alternative history and you know and one of my favorites is when you read about alternative history ideas about because Japan did have designs on invading Australia at some point in time. Yeah. Had things kind of gone their way in the Second World War, they probably would have had a go at it at some point. And yeah. I just love reading about what the hell do you think you were bloody going to do about that? Like, it's a big place with not many people. It would not have been easy. <laughs> um, and the idea that Germany was ever going to end up in Australia in World War One is you know, beyond ludicrous. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, so they do sign up. They end up uh, signing up for different uh, different arms of the armed forces, and we follow them through training in Egypt, where they uh, have very different experiences. And we mainly focus through the middle of a film on Frank, Mel Gibson's Frank, through his experiences in 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 Egypt before they meet up again in a training exercise in Egypt, and they both end up actually working as runners when they actually get to Gallipoli mm. itself. Runners being people who run messages from point to point. One. One, one trench to the next to the next. It was a a very important role, but at the same time, it was a really, really fucking dangerous one. It, it yeah, incredibly so. I mean, um, probably one of the most dangerous jobs, apart from yeah. so being a medic. I mean, were, there, were there any non-dangerous jobs? You know, yeah, being a general, generally they sat behind a, uh, a bench. Yeah, and drink, sipping tea, or like like um, freaking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, darling. Um, but yeah, so 
this is a much beloved Australian film. Like it's mm-hmm. kind of ironic that you read the trivia here, but it got knocked back for a few years by uh, the government funding departments because they didn't think it was commercial. Mm. Um, and I suspect, I don't know what this film grows, but it would be a very, very successful Australian film. Um, and uh, it, it does also reflect, though, at the same time, what took a while to get that funding. Mm. Uh, a, I'm going to go put my history nerd hat on for a second. Australian film history nerd hat this time. Um, the, the, it was a sort of a golden era of Australian cinema um, mm. where if you were making a movie which kind of really romanticised a beloved part of the Australian past, you were a good chance of getting your hands on some very decent money from the government. So this film had a $2.8 million budget in 1981, which was the most expensive Australian film of all time at the, that time. Yeah, And at least at the time, the Australian government would actually fund this kind of thing in the sense that yeah. it was a way for us to have Australian stories told on the big screen. They absolutely yeah. don't do that anymore. No, no. The... Um, the it, it's kind of tragic considering how much talent, we talked about it last week, how much talent there is on the cast and crew side of film and TV in Australia and how much, uh, how many international films shoot in Australia as well because of the diverse locations and things. And yet the Australian homegrown film industry is really underserved by the government in a terrible, terrible way. Um, well, yeah, it, it's, I mean, I guess the, you have a conservative government in power in Australia who would say it's up to the market to fund these sorts of films. It's not the government's place to be funding, mm. you know, films yeah, yeah, and a commercial, which are essentially a commercial enterprise to try and make money mm. by entertaining people, right? Like if, if Australian films, are if they're good enough, they will be funded by the private market, which is, you know, I, I don't think a, a solid uh, argument and I don't think it's a go. Uh, Australian government at the moment this period doesn't give a shit about yeah. the arts at all. Yeah. So, um, but I think personally, my opinion is that I think films like Gallipoli show the incredible value of mm. government, the government investing in this kind of thing. And it wasn't just films like this, it's films like A Picnic at Hanging Rock, uh, Breaking Morant, um, it was also directed by Peter Weir. Yeah, it was, and so and actually, talent of people like Mel Gibson and Peter Weir, who went on to wonderful careers overseas, mm-hmm. um, were really nurtured by these. I'm just just three off the top of my head, and there'd be many mm-hmm. others um, mm-hmm. who uh, were really nurtured by the government, sort of supporting this industry. And aside from you know, obviously, it worked out well for Mel and Co because they made a lot of money yeah. out of careers, but. This is a really important Australian film, and there is a you know, Breaker Morant is an equally well, not equally famous, but another very famous Australian, you know, film of the same period that came about through that government funding, which also is much beloved and a really key cultural touchstone in Australian film history. And people, you know, there's a famous line at the end of that film where Breaker Morant is about to be shot by the firing squad and is um, uh, shoot straight, you bastards! Don't make a mess of it. He's just like. Um, again probably not as famous as this but like again a very very well remembered Australian film those films just aren't being made anymore the Mm. Australian stories like this this, and certainly Breaking Around or Pitney Hammer aren't being made anymore because who's going to fund it like why would you fund a film these days right it's a pretty risky proposition the um the Gallipoli was I think last year was turned into a mini series for Australian networks and I think they did the same thing for Picnic at Hanging Rock uh two years ago maybe something like that it seems like they're just kind of like all right well these have got cachet because of the past 
Mm. We're not going to do anything to expand it or try and reach out further. We're not going to. We're just going to make this for the Australian audience because that's where the money is. Gallipoli, it made more in Australia than it did in the rest of the world. Which um, by, by quite a large amount, which especially considering the time that this movie was released, that's that's a lot of people, a lot of Aussies going to see an Aussie movie. And, you know, that's really good that, you know, homegrown audiences want to see homegrown content. But, um, you know, the, these stories are still being made, but they're being made really exclusively for the Australian audiences on Australian networks where aside from a few shows which are legacy shows essentially like Neighbours, Home and Away, those kinds of things, not much Australian content actually gets shipped elsewhere in the world. There's... No, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, um, there's occasional ones like, you know, some of the stuff that gets made for Stan, uh, at least. They, yeah. it, it seems like the traditional path rather than having being sold overseas is they buy your idea and make it for their market. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's an argument going on at the moment about whether or not Australian TV networks have a local content quota they have to make. Mm. Uh, and they're trying to get rid of that because Netflix and Prime and these guys, they don't have to do that. Mm. So, you know, it's, I, again, if, you know, if they got rid of that local content quota, even those short, so even those miniseries type things you're talking about there would stop being made. Yeah. I think we didn't really intend for this to be about the politics of the Australian <laughs> film industry. But no. I think it's worth mentioning that yeah. an insanely high quality thing like film like this, which is, become a, a cultural touchstone for people in this country where this is the main way they understand what happened in Gallipoli, whether that's right or wrong, mm. is through this film. I mean, it came about because the, the government was like, I think it was like, we think it's worth spending money yeah. on Australian stories being made. And mm. I'd, I'd love if, if, even if, maybe the cinema's not the way these days, but maybe mm. people like Netflix and stuff, but why would they invest money in a film, a $2.3 million film, maybe, you know, to be made purely to be shown to, a couple of million Australians who got subscribed mm-hmm. to their service. It's um, it, it just I, that I mean I know we've done TV series occasionally, but yeah, it, it's it's a tough spot to be in. But bringing it back to the the movie of Gallipoli itself, this is um, you know, it's only done on a less than three million dollars, and they do a really good job of it. Peter Weir directs the shit out of this movie with very minimal. Um, minimal budget in all honesty and um, he makes Peter Weir has has a proven track record of some really good quality stuff like um, the next movie on a chain movie session is going to be another one of his witness Um, but he also did possibly his most famous or most well-known movie is the Truman Show Um, he did Master and Commander um, did Poet Society Society, the way back, he's had his sort of like touch on a lot of very, very quality projects throughout throughout his time, and uh, he's not exactly the most prolific director either. But um, what he does in this, the, the like the sequences of running through the trenches and things like that, they feel adrenaline filled, even though they are quite simply filmed and there's you know you don't have like hundreds and hundreds of people charging over the top in this huge battle like you would in in a modern war movie because they want to have that big action sequence or anything like that it's they consistently maintain 
a very personal story throughout this and the personal combat, the personal challenge that they each go through, the um, the idealism um, that gets stripped away from them and the, the morality that is consistently being attacked. It's really great. And not only is it just the perils of being at war, but the um, the attitudes and the um, the orders that have been barked at them from the uh, from the captains and things like that throughout the trenches and things. It's really, really well done. And you can't help but feel the, the tension being wound up and up and up and up throughout the whole movie from the very start. Just even the the, the foot race where we, where we first meet um, uh, Mel Gibson's character is like, it's obviously it's not on a level of like a running movie, like chariots of fire, but you do still get that little bit of a heart race. So like, Oh shit, this is, this is, this is really good. And it's all credit to, to the cast and the uh, cast and crew on this movie because they do so much with so little really impressive. Uh, they really do. Um, I, I think I said last week, I made a, a, a throwaway comment that, um, uh, they made a film earlier in the year 1917, but I preferred mm. what it was called Gallipoli. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that film, but the first thing I thought of was this film, Gallipoli, when I saw the trailer for 1917, because mm. it felt like a very similar kind of story. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think it, the, the genius, and you're right, but Peter Weir was on a hot streak at this moment in time. He did this. Mm. He moved on from this and made a film called The Year, uh, year of Living Dangerously. Okay. Um, which is another Mel Gibson film, which is probably less known outside of Australia, but also yet again another wonderful, wonderful film. Uh, Sigourney mm-hmm. Weaver's in that as well. Um, and then he moved on to make Witness, which with Harrison Ford and Mosquito Coast, Dead Poet Society, Green Card, you know, up and down a little bit, but all pretty high quality content mm-hmm. there. So he was in his prime and he made Picnic and Hanging Rock a few years before this, which was an, another very famous film um, for, for Australia and a little bit overseas as well. Um, but what I, you submit to the simplicity of is like, if you look at 1917, they try and build in that film, uh, create, you know, they try and build a connection between the characters because, oh, they're brothers. Mm. Lazy. Right? Of course, you don't have to say anything. Okay, we're brothers. Well, of course, they're going to, you know, want to yeah. run across, uh, you know, enemy lines to, to save them, you know, because they're brothers. But they don't put, for a war film, just put, half of its effort, two-thirds of its effort, into just building its characters. Mm. It really, it's weird. I mean, we don't get to Gallipoli until the last act. Yeah. Uh, and the rest of the time is about building um, Frank and Archie's relationship and then Frank's relationship with his mates in the infantry yeah. and learning more about the kind of person Frank is and then meeting back up with Archie and the shenanigans that they get up to in Egypt and the mateship. And I think that's what really resonates to, at least to an Australian, like the whole idea of mateship is a... Uh, a key sort of component of Australian culture, but yeah. we spend so much time with these characters, yeah. not fighting, not doing war shit, just being themselves. Like, you know, trying to get from Northern WA to get to Perth to sign up. And as you know, we, we meet Frank in the railway camp and his mates reading the paper. And, you know, mm. we see that we see them go to Egypt. We see them playing football against near the pyramids and then visiting prostitutes and, yeah. you know, um, taking the piss out of British officers and stuff like that. It's beating up local shopkeepers. It's just, um, it, it's so, we, we, by the time we get to Gallipoli, we really are on board with this friendship between Frank and Archie. Exactly. We, are, we I mean, the, the, the amazing performances by uh, Mark Lee and Mel Gibson, people forget because Mel's such a movie star now and kind of a weirdo, mm. um, but the guy could seriously fucking act in his day. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. That's I think you're absolutely on the money there as well. It's the investment in the people, and who'd have thought that um, you know spending time building a rapport with your main character would lead to a really, really important emotional end when everything comes to a head. Who'd have thought that? Who'd have thought that? It's almost like, you know, this movie did that with with these two guys um, in one film and Marvel did it over the course of 10 years in their movies for Iron Man. And that was it. I mean, yeah, (laughs) maybe if filmmaking's changed, I would imagine if you were having this conversation with a studio executive and you took the Gallipoli script in today, I'm not going to have any action uh, until, you know, the hour and a half mark of a film or something, you know. They'd be like, there's a door. Like, Mm -hmm. people won't pay attention for, you know, 100 minutes of character building and story. Yeah. Um, And I, I thoroughly disagree with that. I mean... Agree, agree. It's unskillfully and it's well written. And, and mm-hmm. I, I mentioned again last week this film is um, written not only by, by uh, Peter Weir, but also mm-hmm. by David Williamson, who is one of the greatest Australian writers alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, if you, I wish we could go deep, I wish we could go dive into some of that, but another time. Um, but he's written some really fascinating plays and screenplays for Australian films and, and theatre. Mm-hmm. So, we we have great actors, we have great writing, we have great direction, and we have a cool story the whole time. And of course, you're going to we we love these guys. I mean, yeah, you do not want to be friends with fucking Frank. Yeah, exactly. He's he's that guy that's just kind of he's got a magnetism to him. Um, and Mel and- was a great choice of that because Mel had that incredible charisma and magnetism. Yeah. Um, at the at the at his age, and you know. He was just sort of, a, if you read about what Peter Weir sort of said about him at the time, he's sort of like kicking back, just sort of take going with a flow. He didn't think anybody saw him becoming the huge megastar that he became later on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I heartily recommend anyone watching this movie. It's got a Metacritic score of 65, which I think is very much on the on the poor side for, for this. I think that this is should be at least a 75, in all honesty, because of the quality acting, the great story, the great direction. It is still timeless as well. Even looking at it and pairing it up against modern war movies, it just feels like a different style of war movie. It doesn't feel outdated in any way. Um, no, it holds know, up really well. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's use of practical special effects. It was shot in Australia, believe it or not, mostly. I don't, I don't, I don't think Egypt, I don't think they shot the scene near the pyramids in Egypt. Most of them... Mm. The scenes in Gallipoli were in South Australia. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it still looks great today. And, I mean, yeah. I compare, I'm comparing it to 1917, which I thought was fine. Yeah. Um, but it felt like more of a, aren't we clever? Look what we can do. One make it look it's like a technical showcase. That's yeah. what 1917 is. Uh, compared to this, which is, you know, genuinely engaging, memorable mm. characters. Mm. Uh, and the ending we won't spoil it in case you haven't seen it. Yeah. But the end of his film is possibly one of the most affecting um, conclusions to any film I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Um, uh, but yeah. Anything else you wanted to say about Gallipoli? Cause I think we've um, talked about uh, Australian movie government politics. We have talked about the quality of this movie. We've talked about everything. I think it's very easy for me to talk about this film. It's like, I, I, I always said to you at the start of this podcast, I almost mm. didn't need to watch it again. 
Yeah. I probably could have done all of this from memory because I have seen it so many times over the years. Mm. Um, but it was it was definitely a pleasure to go back and watch it again. And if you are so lucky to lucky enough to have not seen it before, you have got a treat waiting for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely agree. Now, as I said earlier on, the next uh, movie in our movie chain session is Peter Weir's directed Witness, starring Harrison Ford, Kelly McGillis, Lucas Haas, um, Joseph Sommers, a young um, uh, Viggo Mortensen, and even Danny Glover. So it's got a lot of faces in there, and this is um, a this is one of my personal favorite movies. So I'm I'm really spoiling us at the moment, getting us to, to where we're going to be. I've got a good confession. I don't know if I've ever seen, sat down and watched this film for end to end. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. You're a terrible person. A terrible person. But uh, for those who do not know, Witness is uh, the story of a young Amish boy who's the sole witness to a murder, poli- uh, to the murder of policeman um, and policeman John Book who's Harrison Ford's character, goes into hiding in the Amish country protect, to protect him until the trial. It is a great, great story. It's It's got, it's definitely more of, um, especially coming off of Gallipoli, where it is so much character building stuff. This one has got a bit more of the Hollywood romance element to it in the middle part, but um, it's, just a, a, a very wholesome movie um, in in the in the centre, and it um, it's it's kind of hard to portray the Amish community in a way that you don't kind of laugh at if you're in the traditional, or I guess uh, the the modern Western world of technology and everything like that. So the um, the odd couple scenarios of Harrison Ford's very much city based cop. Um, going to this Amish community, there's a there's a lot of humor that comes into it, but it's uh, it's honest humor. It's it's that difficulty. He's not judging or anything like that. It's really nice, and I think uh, quite a lot of people they think of anything involving the Amish community. Unfortunately, they will often think of like what the fuck's his name, Paulie Shaw's movie that involved it, um, Weird Al Yankovic's Amish Paradise. It's it's the butt of a lot of jokes, so it's it's not that in this, and it's just a very good suspenseful thriller. So. I will look forward to it, mm. and this and this opens up all the doors. You can go anywhere from here. Mm-hmm, but and where will we end up? Little Women Three. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> uh, damn it! Number two, where he has that line at the end, he goes. A diplomatic community <laughs> just been revoked. <laughs> One of the most quoted lines ever, I think. Diplomatic community. <laughs> All right. So, um, do you want me to talk about? Uh, By all means, let's talk parasite. Huh? Parasite. Yes. So, 2019's best movie at the Oscars, Parasite. Hadn't watched it until uh, this past week, and my god, so good, so good. Have you um, seen it, Travis? I have not. Uh, it's on my to do list for quite some time, but um, you know, once it's there, you know, you know it's there, and you're like, oh, I'll get to it later. It is truly awesome. Um, directed by Boon Joon Ho, 
who also did possibly his most popular Western movie, I guess, was Snowpiercer. Um, he did Okja, which was um, a Netflix original. Um, and uh, he's uh, credited, obviously, with the, the Netflix, I think it's Netflix series. Um, oh, no, it's TNT, Snowpiercer TV series. Um, this guy knows how to how to work his his last big movie before this i think that got uh sort of like international recognition was a monster movie called the host i mean snow people got a fair, of a fair bit of attention yeah yeah it got a fair got a fair bit of attention and i really love that movie and i just went back and watched it anyway because it's fun but parasite is so much on a whole new level like he he took his game which was already good and just knocked it right out of the park um so greed and class discrimination threatened the newly formed uh symbiotic relationship between the wealthy park family and the destitute kim uh, clan this is so it so brilliantly sways between comedy drama and thriller throughout the whole thing it is absolutely incredible um basically the Kim family live in a semi-basement apartment that looks like a hovel. And so like when the rain comes in, they have to make sure they close the windows or else the water comes in off the street and, and just fills, floods their flat. They, um, uh, at the beginning, they're working out cheap ways and efficient ways of folding pizza boxes to make money. They're going around their basement apartment trying to find a signal for Wi-Fi so they can use WhatsApp so they can find new jobs and things because they can't afford to pay their phone bills. It's um, a brilliant slice of that real destitute side of life that you really don't see in movies, and yet there's still this real wholesome family connection to it. Then... um, uh, Dong, uh, Dong Ik, uh, no, it's not Dong Ik, sorry. Uh, it is Ki Woo, who is the, um, the son of the family, uh, of the Kim family. He has a, um, a university student friend who comes in and he asks, uh, Woo Sik to, um, take over tuition of this young girl in, um, in the Park family, who's this very rich, elaborate family, because he has got plans to, officially ask her to be his girlfriend when he comes back from America. And he, uh, he asks um, Wusi, uh, Kiwu to actually to do this because he doesn't see Kiwu as a threat to, um, to his potential relationship with this girl. And so his sister, um, Kiwu's uh, sister, Kijung, um, basically fakes a university certificate and he goes and bullshits his way into getting this uh, tuition story. And almost instantly he um, starts ingratiating the rest of his family into this rich family's home. Um, He says that his sister is actually um, a friend of his cousins who is an art therapist and might be able to help the park's youngest son who's um, got a lot of behavioral issues and does a lot of art. And so she comes in and fakes being an art therapist. Um, they 
She then leaves her knickers in the back of the park car to um, get uh, to discredit their personal driver so that they can get their dad in to be the driver. And it just escalates and they get the mum involved as well. And then so like you suddenly think you think, okay, I get where this is going. And this is all kind of done in jest a little bit. And there's there's still that level of comedy, but a little bit of creepy factor sneaking in. And then suddenly it takes a left turn. You go, what the fuck? Oh, my God, this is amazing. And it just goes in this whole different direction that I'm not going to say anything about story wise because it's brilliant. I didn't see it coming. I was not spoiled in this movie beforehand. And I'm so glad I wasn't because I just went for the ride and I did not see it coming. And it was amazing. Really, really good. Every single performance throughout the whole thing is phenomenal. This is directed so stylistically. There are huge breakdown videos on YouTube you can watch about the framing of every single scene where people are kind of breaking through lines when they're it's all about that social distance between the the rich and the poor and when characters kind of swap through one to another they'll literally go through like the the pane of a, a window the separator and it's it's incredible there is so much intelligence in this movie it is absolutely fucking incredible i recommend this highly so highly so i assume you would say it was a fair choice for best picture oh yeah there was nothing that could possibly fucking touch this last year easily nothing (laughs) and you know trump was famous for kind of coming out and saying oh they gave the best big best movie picture to this korean movie what the fuck it's like he clearly didn't watch it and he clearly wouldn't have understood it anyway because this movie is so good. It is so funny, even though you have, uh, even though it's subtitled, you can still get the comedy. I found myself not really paying much attention to the um, to the words. I could understand the intentions of what was going on. The there's multiple twists throughout this whole thing that just turn it in from one genre to another, to another, to another. And every single time, you go. <gasps> Oh, it's amazing. I absolutely loved it. So, so good. It's interesting you mentioned Trump there because um, I think, uh, I don't know if you know, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury in the States, I think it's it's Steve Mnuchin, Mm. who used to be a big-time Hollywood producer. You see his name pop up on film Mm. all the time. and So obviously Trump has some sort of connection into the the film industry. Uh, And a word in the street is he and Mnuchin actually have been working on uh, an American translation or remake or what do you want to call it of parasite in which um the the kim clan uh they're going to change it up a little bit for the u.s audience obviously um Mm. and and the the kim clan instead of being sort of this destitute underclass of you know grift grifters or what do you want to call them the Mm. other clan are actually in the uh uh, steve mnuchin trump sort of uh reaper uh are going to be here an elite team of navy seals um and it's it's <laughs> yeah it's it's you know um shut up <laughs> so you know we're gonna be it, it's gonna be like die hard but in a building 
And there's going to be animatronic robots, I know. And there's going to be a pet that can talk. It's going to be amazing. It's, it's going to be good. good. I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see what Jared Butler does with that. <laughs> Angel has moved in. <laughs> Angel has declared bankruptcy. <laughs> Uh, I almost tried. Is it, I, almost, I watched a part of a, um, a Jared Butler film the other, the other night. Um, if I, I finish it, we might talk about it on the show. All right, all right. But yeah, I heartily recommend this movie to anyone with a pulse. It's it's really excellent, really really excellent. And uh, Bong Joon Ho, um, he's 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 a talented motherfucker. Uh, I look forward to seeing what he does next because um, it's interesting to see if he decides to take the this show on the road to Hollywood because surely after his best his Oscar wins this year and stuff people are offering him large yeah. trucks or maybe he's worked with Netflix before so yeah. someone's offering him a lot of money to make his next thing for them in the states. Well, he has nothing um, officially announced on IMDb for his next project, which um, you know I'm. Uh, disappointed in because i can't wait to see what he comes up with next but uh i'm happy just going back and re-watching these other movies because they're great <laughs> i mean in fairness covid kind of landed right in the middle of when he might have been you know looking for his next thing he, i mean assuming he had something to do with a snow piece of tv show yeah yeah i guess so but um yeah um absolutely fantastic so that's all i have to say on that oh that one yeah well i i, I mean it just sort of reinforces in my head but i gotta get around to seeing that at some point mm-hmm. Before they turn him into Navy SEALs. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of probably what I as I was coming off of this movie, I was I kept on thinking, yeah, they're they're gonna make a Western version of it, but it's not gonna be the same. They're gonna they're gonna lose the creepy for one thing, and it'll be just a comedy. And you could easily make a comedy of this, but Oh, that's doing such a disservice. I mean, it's like anyways. Like I remember many, many years ago seeing. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mangle the French, but the French film Let Dinner Des Cons, yeah, the dinner game. Um, yeah. And uh, for years they were talking. Oh, you know, someone's option that they're gonna do a Hollywood remake of it because the original was just hilarious, like French comedy farce. Uh, and eventually they did remake it like 10, 15 years later. Mm-hmm. That dinner for schmucks. Oh fuck yes! Oh, so bad. Which was just fucking awful, despite the talent on hand. Yeah. And, and if you see the original film, it's just it's clever, funny. It's not just fart jokes and people who look silly with dumb yeah. names. And you know, uh, it it was seriously good. I think I saw it twice at the cinema, which doesn't happen often. Yeah. And, yeah, that kind of thing happens all the fucking time, right? Like you, you there's an original, and they somehow. Yeah, even no matter what they do with a remake, they manage to basically, you know, pull out all the good stuff and just make it a shell of what was so good about the, the original. If you look at uh, the Girl of a Dragon tattoo or um, yeah, let, let the right one in the remake of that was fine. Yeah. But, I mean, why would I watch that? Because the original's better. Yeah, and it's just some subtitles. That's all you got to put up with. So yeah, there aren't very many remakes, Hollywood remakes of foreign films that stand up to much scrutiny, but. You know, if someone can make money off it, they'll probably do it. I'm still surprised that there has not been 
an Americanized version of Amelie. Yeah, so maybe if I wouldn't sell my rabbit, it was just too French. Maybe, maybe, but you know, I, I feel like there must be some independent writer director out there who's just going, you know what, we could do that set in New York. Yeah, you could give it 10 years ago and put Zooey Dash and Ellen and it would have worked, but you know. Do <laughs> um, <laughs> you find your 2020 Manic Pixie Dream Girl to, to fill in the role, but. I'm glad to leave it where it is because I love that film. Yeah, yeah that's a that's a fantastic movie. Yeah, but right. here we move on to something else a little bit lighter in tone. Yes, and right. I mean lighter. And when I say lighter, I mean significantly heavier. Um, <laughs> it's um, and that is the Netflix movie. Uh, I'm thinking of ending things. Mm-hmm. Ominous title. Uh, this is directed by and written and directed by Charlie Kaufman. Uh, who you guys might be familiar with as uh, the writer of films like Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, being John Malkovich, Mm -hmm. Adaptation. He wrote Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which stars the show's favourite actor, Sam Rockwell. Oh, Uh, yeah. It's an underrated film. Um, He also wrote and directed Synecdoche, New York, and he was nominated for an Oscar last year for Anomalisa, uh, which I haven't seen, but it does sound interesting. Hmm. Uh, so Charlie kind of made his name as a writer and now he's sort of got a rep and he's won an Oscar, so he's hmm. directing his own shit now. Uh, and this kind of made me what I was thinking about Boonju Ho is that um, I think Netflix just let you just give you a check and say, see you later. Hmm. Come back when you finish the film. I, I genuinely feel like that is the only way a film, like I'm thinking of anything's ever got made. Um, yeah. That's basic. And I suspect that's actually, in a, in a way, stands Netflix in good stead with filmmakers. Um, I've made the joke many times. I think Netflix has become the director video um, of the 21st century. You know, it's the starting yeah. going, they made a sequel to that? Uh, <laughs> you know, like uh, I'm thinking of um, the, the Cloverfield paradox. The shit they can't sell anywhere else, Netflix buy it and, you know, market it well and then, you know, you don't know what you paid for is garbage. Yeah. Um, then I think there's the other end of a spectrum, and that is I'm thinking of ending things, and that mm-hmm. is the Irishman, right? Um, yeah. So where basically they just give a pile of money to someone with a name, a Scorsese, a Kaufman, you know, and say, make us a movie, do whatever you want. We put your name on the front, maybe win an award. Yeah. Um, so that's that's is a very fucking unusual movie. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about Shelley Kaufman, that should not surprise you one iota. Um, full of misgivings, a young woman travels with her new boyfriend to his parents' secluded farm. Upon arriving, she comes to question everything she thought she knew about him and herself. Okay. That is a remarkably simplistic description of his film. I was going to say. <laughs> um, it describes a, I, I don't actually really know what this film is about, is a great way to describe it up front. It is a <laughs> drama slash thriller, according to INDV. I've watched some reviews online where people sort of angle it as one of the scariest movies of the year. I don't know about that. I don't think I was ever scared okay. or freaked out, but it is creepy. It is cringy. Right. It is uncomfortable. Okay. It is kind of fascinating. Okay. Um, so it stars uh, Jesse Plemons, uh, a.k.a. Meth Damon, um, best known for probably um, uh, he was in Breaking Bad. 
He was in uh, one of the episodes of Black Mirror, the um, USS Callister episode. That's right, yeah. Fucking great episode of a show. And he's popping up more and more in films around the place now. So he's got himself a bit of a career going. Sure. And I, I think the uh, Tony Collette uh, stars as his mum. Mm-hmm. Um, we have also got David, how do we, David, David Foolis. Phyllis, as he's, I never pronounced that right, as his dad. And they are fucking fantastic in this film. Yeah. But I think the standout performance here is Jesse Buckley as young woman, the unnamed female protagonist of our story. Okay. I'm going to chant her name from the fucking hills. Jesse Buckley is a superstar in waiting if she wants to be, if her career goes well. Like, this is like when you, I don't know if anybody ever saw Winter's Bone when just Jennifer Lawrence was nominated for her Oscar for that. Before she oh, was yeah. stick, before she was in anything big, you're like that chick is going places. Mm. Jesse Buckley, just she's gonna get her her Marvel film, and she's gonna be on the front cover of magazines for twenty years. She is a sensational talent, and she's fucking brilliant in this film. Um, in fact, she's Irish, and she has the best American accent for a <laughs> second. Um, but she's outstanding in this film, outstanding. Okay. Um, as it sort of says, like the film starts with her sort of her internal monologue talking about the fact she's been dating her boyfriend, um, Jake, played by Jesse Plemons, for not very long now, but they have this amazing connection. At the same time, she's tossing up in her head going, but I'm thinking about ending things. Um, and the first probably after that first sort of opening credits, the next 15 minutes of them in the car driving. That's it. Uh, apart from the occasional, there's like, um, you know, flashes of, of a janitor working at a ho- ho- high school, which will come relevant later. Um, it's just them talking in the car for 15 minutes and it's uncomfortable, okay. um, which is probably, you know, what you would expect considering what she's going on in her head considering she's thinking about breaking up with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a fairly standard story, even if these people don't talk like anybody you've ever met in your entire life. Okay. Um and it's that's just some brilliant. I mean, like we talked before a few weeks ago about my thing is two people in a room talking, mm-hmm. and if that, can, if that can entertain you, then I am all yours, filmmaker. Yeah, and that's kind of a little bit what this we have this film starts, but it it's uncomfortable. It's whoa, yeah, it's really out there. And at the same time, it's a bit creepy for some reason. You're not really quite sure why. We okay. end up at the farmhouse where we meet Tony Collette and David Fuller's. I, I have said before, I think Tony Collette is a living national treasure, Australian national treasure. I think don't think there are many people who do cringe quite like Tony Collette. Like, you know, not like in a bad way, but in like a over-the-top uh, friendly, over-the-top, yet with flashes of aggression. It's, yeah, <laughs> and she's fucking outstanding. And his David Foolis is really, really, again, uncomfortably, um, makes you very uncomfortable as Jake's dad. But then once at the farmhouse, things start getting weird, right? We have jumps in time. We seem to be jumping forwards and backwards in time. Uh, at different times, uh, Jesse Buckley's character is addressed by different names. Uh, her, she, her, what she does for a living changes as the story as the story moves on. And on a dime, not like a. There's no DeLorean, right? Like it's just it, it, you know, we turn a corner and all of a sudden she's a waitress. Now she's studying physics. Now she's studying gerontology. She's studying art. She's something else, right? Um, one moment, you know, Tony Collette is dressed like a fifties housewife and is very young. 
you know, a couple of minutes later, she's dying in a deathbed, right? Like it's just as an old woman, it's okay. Things just happen. Um, <laughs> and the whole time she's at, you know, um, she's at, uh, at Jake, I want to leave. I've got to go home tonight. There's a blizzard outside. And I'm, I, if I'm sounds like I'm doing a bad job describing it, I'd say I'm actually doing quite a good job because <laughs> it's not an easy film to describe. Um, it's, it ends up the final act is in a high school. And I believe the book it's based on, apparently this is when things started to get really, really full-on violent. I will say this for this film, it doesn't end up in violence. It is not a violent film. There is no horror. There is no gore. Okay. It is just very creepy, very uncomfortable. Uh, The closest thing I can kind of describe it to is Mulholland Drive by David Lynch. Um, That sort of dream-like you know, there's a dreamlike nature of a film where nothing really connects to the last thing and stuff just sort of vaguely moves in the same direction, but none of it seems connected. Um, yeah. And you'd be at a loss to really say what that film was actually about unless you're a film scholar. Uh, <laughs> and you really Even just, then you could be debated. <laughs> and, and you're really just, you're just invited to go on a ride and enjoy it for what it is. Mm. Um, and I, I don't think you're actually going to take the ride. I'm thinking of anything and enjoy it, mm. but it is a ride. And there are a couple of incredible moments in that towards the end where you're like, oh, that is a just one shot in particular. I'm not going to spoil it for people, but there's one shot when when um, the young woman is entering the school mm-hmm. and she looks at the rubbish bin next to the, next to the entrance of the school. I'll just say you look out for that scene because that room was like, oh, I like that. That is fucking cool. Um, and that's going to keep people. I think you I, I, you need to watch it two or three more times to really get your head around it properly because there's so many okay. things going on with it. I've heard different things said about it. Um, I was watching one review last night that said it was like an audio book with pictures, um, <laughs> which is an interesting way to describe a film. Uh, yeah. People have said they can entirely cerebral. It happens all above your shoulders. There's no emotion. It's all all aimed at your intelligence and. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I I'm not a fan of abstract film as a rule, mm. um, but I kind of enjoyed this. Okay. Um, I think you do definitely, definitely need to be in the right mindset for it. Uh, a friend of mine tried to watch it on Saturday night after a few drinks and said she couldn't handle it. I'm like, I would say that is the wrong way to go about this film. I think <laughs> if you had a bad day and you're stressing out about something, I'd suggest this is not the film to sit down and enjoy because it's not an easy watch. It's going to make you work for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's it's on Netflix anyway. And I mean, if you're looking for something challenging, something you haven't seen done before, something that's really, really going to make you stop and think, and you're going to be probably wondering about it for a few days afterwards. Yeah, I will put this towards the top of your list. Though okay. the one thing it kind of made me think about it is that I do think Charlie Kaufman, as a film director, makes a wonderful writer. <laughs> um, I, I think what made him his earlier work great, and I think is I watched a review by Mark Commode. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a British film reviewer who I'm quite a big fan of. Heard of him, yeah. Uh, BBC Channel Four. Or so, I don't know. He's, on, mm. he's he's British. You know everyone is British, don't you? Of course. Uh, <laughs> um, so he he basically said it's been years since he something that came out from Charlie Kaufman that he really loved, and I would have to agree with him. I liked mm. this. I didn't love this. But when you compare it to something like Eternal Sunshine or Being Beyond Malkovich or Adaptation, 
three great films. The difference between those films and this film is he didn't direct them. He's a fucking great writer. But he went out in being John Malkovich an adaptation. He got Spike Jones, who I think is a great director. Yeah, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. He got Michelle Gondry, who was also a a fantastic director. And that that that, that meshing of of magic between Charlie Kaufman's crazy and Michelle Gondry's sort of you know incredible visual style and you know uh, visions of what something can happen on the screen. These two things go well together, right? So mm-hmm. a little bit mm-hmm. like when George Lucas stopped directing Star Wars films in back in the seventies and eighties, right? Yeah. And his kind of his his sort of writing style and his you know ideas against someone who's actually a competent director, you know, he sparks fly. And I think I think Charlie Kaufman, he's making as sort of said at the start, he's making the films he wants to make with Netflix, and that's yeah. probably all you'll ever want as a as a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, but I. Would love it if he decided to go back to working with really great directors again. So yeah. I don't think he's a really great director. I think he's solid. Okay. Yeah, I will check that movie out when I. I'd be fascinated to hear what you think of it. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, it's about tiddlywinks. <laughs> well, it could be. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the last thing that I want to just touch on this week, ladies and gentlemen, is the new. Um, Battle Royale game available on PlayStation, Xbox. I'm playing it on uh, Nintendo Switch. It's also available on um, uh, Mac and PC, I believe. It is one called Spellbreak. Now, this is um, an interesting one. It's um, it's only been out for, I think, seven days at this point, and it is very much your quintessential battle royale if you've ever played PUBG, if you've played Fortnite, any of those kinds of games, it's that sort of thing. Up until yesterday, I think it was, it was squads only. They've only just opened up solo de- uh, department of it, um, and they haven't opened up duos yet. But um, there's a couple of things that make this stand out a little differently. So first up, the um, the art style is very very it owes so much in its art style to uh legend of zelda breath of the wild um and not only on that kind of semi cell shaded kind of look to it but also the 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 clothing and the the world building that they have is like destroyed um castles and uh, farmhouses and things that would be absolutely perfectly positioned if they were dropped into breath of the wild it is kind of a, in a derogatory way i guess you could say this is breath of the wild battle royale because even the characters you can choose a male or female and then you can customize them with different costumes and stuff past standard for battle royale games um and um, it's 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 so much Legend of Zelda, which is always going to be a quick shortcut to my heart. But the other thing about this game that makes it stand out for me is it's not just um, oh pick the best weapon and shoot the fuck out of everyone. The the traversal of the landscape in this is really good fun. You've got your standard jump, but you can levitate for a certain amount of time, which makes uh, kind of scaling climbing up really good fun. Um, that you can there's um, a special um, runes that you can pick up with the a button that you can go invisible you can do um, a wolf's bane where it'll sh- uh, show where enemies are within a certain 
uh, radius of you. You can fly. Um, there's there's a number of different things like dash and high jump and uh, slow fall, simple things like that. But then you also have gauntlets, one for your left hand and one for your right hand. And they only have, I think there's six or eight variations. There's uh, toxic, lightning, fire, uh, fire, ice, earth, um, and lightning. Uh, there's, I'm pretty sure there's six. Um, but not only do they have like a strong attack and a weak attack, but when you complement them with the other gauntlet, which can be a different, which will be a different um, element, I guess, they can play really nicely. Like um, if you have the wind gauntlet, you can create a, a, a vortex. And if you happen to throw some toxic cloud in there, it becomes a toxic vortex. If you have, if you use the toxic and make a, a mushroom cloud and you freeze it, you can stand on top of that to, to get higher up or you can freeze people inside it. If you are using a lot of ice, you can skate along it to speed up your movement across the terrain. If you um, then strike that ice with lightning, it electrifies it and you can shock people that are on it. There's a lot of kind of um, interconnectivity with all the weapons that you play. And when you have a squad that works together and is kind of going, all right, if you go for those two, I'll go for those two, I'll go for those two, you can really complement a team and, and someone might throw up a firewall, but if you've got ice, you can put that out. Or if you've got wind, you can dissipate, dissipate it. If someone has thrown down lots of toxic goo everywhere, you can set fire to it or ice, it nullifies it and you can complement things like that. It's really, really good fun. How are you finding it on uh, on uh, on Switch? The it's smooth as butter. It's lovely. The controls are nice and simple, fluid. Um, it's a little annoying that they don't have gyro controls, which is something that a lot of Switch games and Switch versions have. That just means that you can kind of aim a little bit quicker. It's a bit more akin to like the the keyboard and mouse controls of the um, of the of, of the PC world. Um, it just means that you can get the upper hand on others quite quickly. Um, I started playing straight away, and in the space of a week, I've gone from being on the winning teams to pretty consistently losing. <laughs> but um, I'm never very good at these games, but I'm enjoying it. I jump in for a couple of couple of rounds and play. Um, it's just it, it's it's a it's a battle royale game kind of made for me with that Zelda heavy vibe to it, the kind of Dungeons and Dragons magical element to it all. There's something coming in the future. It's a, a tab along the top that says chapters. So I'm curious to see what that's going to be, whether there's going to be some story element coming in. Um, but it's really, really enjoyable. I do recommend it. it's free to play. It's worth just getting in there and giving it a try. Why not? Um, you don't have to put any money down if you want to get different like trails uh, as you descend from the sky and all that sort of stuff you can just like cosmetics yeah all of those cosmetics they're all there the same type of thing as say um apex legends right like i mean that's yeah but kind of that's basically selling cosmetics in that yeah and that's that's the other thing you know when when you were playing apex legends you talked about the ping system 
Mm. And they've incorporated a version of that into this game. And so like, oh, I found a legendary fire gauntlet. I'm not using that. I'll ping it for my other party to come and have a look at, you know. Everybody ripped them off of that one. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's a great system. It works. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, there's, um, what do they say, uh, you know, a good artist copy, great artist steal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, that's that's all I really wanted to say about um, Spellbreak because it's, it's just a really solid game. Who knows if it's going to have any kind of longevity to it. I hope so. It certainly seems to be – I've not had to wait for a game at all, but like I say – I'm really making there a, a whole lot of um, Battle Royale shooters type games, whether you call this a shooter or not. Uh, Battle Royale games on the Switch. Um, well, it's Fortnite. And there's this. Um, there's a uh, Rogue Rogue Squad or something like that. There's an uh, one that came out very recently. Um, but I really didn't like it. I I tried playing it, and it was the controls are really trashy. It didn't play very well on the Switch. Um, but you know that was um beta launch that i played it so hopefully it's gotten better um yeah i don't know if there are a lot on switch but it's nice to have variety and it definitely feels at home on the switch because of that aesthetic similarity to legend of zelda which incidentally we got another update on some more legend of zelda stuff for anyone who's interested um legend of zelda um, the Age of Calamity, I think it is. It's a, a, a Muso style game, like um, you know, one versus uh, one warrior versus an entire army of people. But it tells the story of a hundred years before the events of Breath of the Wild, when the armies of Ganon rise up to take over Hyrule. And I think it's um, just from the early trailer that got released last night. I think it was. Um, it looks like really good. It looks really respectful to the art style and to the um, the general feel of a typical Zelda game. Um, and it seems to be a bit more story focused. So color me interested. Unfortunately, they did also say that the sequel to Breath of the Wild is still a ways off. So probably not going to happen by the end of this year. Anyone who is deluded enough to think that that's going to happen, it'll be next year. Um but yeah, it's uh, some interesting Zelda and Zelda-inspired stuff happening out I there. See Legends of Hyrule has just come out, right? Uh, Hyrule was, Warriors. Yeah, Hyrule Warriors was one that came out, I think, three years ago at this point. That um, was there a new one ready to come out. Must have imagined it. Well, there was uh, when the Switch launched. There was Breath of the Wild. The next year was um, Hyrule Warriors. Then there was... Um, okay, this is the thing you're talking about. Hyrule Warriors, Age of Calamity. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So that is, um, uh, it's not a sequel to Hyrule Warriors, but it's in that same same, uh, same idea of gameplay. This is very specifically... This is, I think, the first time in canon that there's been a game, uh, like a, a sub-game for Legend of Zelda that has kind of tried doing something differently there. Like, there was... A couple of weird ones way back in the early 90s or late 80s, I think. But this is the first in a long time at the very least. Exciting yeah. times ahead for Nintendo fans. Well, it's exciting times for, for all because, you know, we've got the um, the unofficial and then officialized leak of the Xbox Series S, which is releasing on the 10th of November. 
Um, still no prices for the Xbox Series X or the PlayStation I heard 300 US is what I heard uh, this week, and obviously that could be all speculative, but that sounds about right. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? It's um, Xbox and PlayStation are playing a little bit of hide-the-price chicken, I think. It doesn't really make any difference because, like, I was thinking about it today. Someone, a friend of mine in the States posted about it and said that was the source of a 300 US dollar mm-hmm. rumor I saw. And I'm like, oh, it'll be about 600 Australian then. So, yeah. Um, but why would I want to buy one? That's the problem. I mean, that's the problem that Microsoft have still. I mean, I, I don't exactly know. We'll wait and see, I guess, what exactly is that launch. But uh, it won't be that Halo game that everybody um, shat on. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what's shipping with a PlayStation, but they've got a pretty good lineup of stuff they could ship with it. Assuming what depends what's ready. Yeah, I'm just waiting for someone to come out and go. This is a reason to buy the Xbox One S on day one. Yeah, I don't see one right now. Yeah, I I am I'm not going to buy either console day one because there's you know there's there's um kind of legacy quality um sequels and stuff coming to the playstation 5 but they're not games that i've played the first ones of and if i have i've not particularly enjoyed them they're just not my kind of game so why would i buy them for a you know fork out 700 dollars for a console and a game when i'm probably not going to enjoy it and the xbox series x my um, Xbox One X is still playing all the games perfectly fine, and at the moment there's no game at launch that's only going to be on the Series X or the Series the Series S um, that I'm kind of going, oh fuck yeah, I've got to do it. I can wait. I'm happy. Yeah, we, we did talk about this uh, when yeah. they had their their, their big shamozzle of things showing all the games they were supposedly supposed to get us excited about. I, I, it's a worry, right? I mean, if I because uh, the view from Tardy Frankfurt. Uh, I can afford one very easily, right? I mean, you'll see right here next week behind me. There should be my my arcade cabinet will be here. There's one coming. Oh so, yes. Um, but you know, I, I have nothing in, nothing but spare time right now, and I need a dopamine hit, so I will buy things I don't really need. <laughs> um, at Microsoft, but you know, yeah, I do need some sort of justification in my head to go. Well, if I can get the Xbox One S, mm. whatever they're going to call the fucking thing. If I can get the new Xbox, I could do that thing. I could play that game that looks kind of cool or yeah, I don't know what else I could do, you know. So, but there's not even that justification in my head. Like if I get the arcade console, I go, oh, I can play NBA Jam and, uh, you know, um, 3,500 other arcade games I liked when I was young and had a life. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's... Um, the Xbox just don't really, you, you got to launch with something. Come on. Well, I mean, I, I've had a lot of debates online with a lot of people saying, oh, but, you know, you're going to be able to play 4K. It's like, well, I haven't got a 4K TV, so it doesn't make any difference to me anyway. Uh, so if I did want to do that, I'd be looking at well over $1,200, $1,500 to get a 4K TV but these things are saying that they can stream up to 8K, so I would already still be behind the times for my TV. With a console where there aren't actually any brand new games that are say- telling me I have to play it right now when all of the games and their Game Pass and all of that greatness, I can still happily play on my current system. Why? Why would I 
shouldn't. I'm not going to. Give a shit about that much of, you know, confirms launch titles, Fortnite. Yay. <laughs> Which we can already play. But you can't play in 4K. I could if I played it on my phone. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. Uh, I mean, it, it's, yeah, we don't want to get into that, but I would I would love to buy one at some point. But yeah. please, 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 Microsoft, give me a reason. And, yeah. I'll, and I will consider it. To buy it and we'll give you money. Maybe maybe we have to wait for Cyberpunk. That is that is the one that's on the on the horizon for me. So like, oh yeah, I want the I want the best experience for that one. And if that's not available on the you know the uh, the Expo, um, then that would maybe just about do it because I'm very curious. Yeah, yeah, it's coming from a, a top quality studio. Witcher is a phenomenal series. Witcher three was phenomenal. No microtransactions. Well, apparently there are going to be microtransactions in the the but apparently they're not going to anger the players, which I'm sure has never been said by a um, microtransaction executive ever about any game ever. Uh, you know what? I think it's actually a balance they can strike, right? Like I think people, when it came to Red Dead Redemption 2, mm. kind of like that game, a solo campaign of that was so epic, so well-produced, so brilliant. Mm. Okay, you can have your fucking Red, Red Dead Online, and it can be a pile of shit. It can be a <laughs> microtransaction filled mess full of griefers. We'll give you that one as long as you gave us what we wanted in the uh, single player campaign. Absolutely fair. You know, if every everyone will get their kicks from one thing, I think it's pretty fair to say that you and I vastly prefer. The story game, the the solo game, maybe the co-op story campaign compared to the online shit show that is most games. If we ever find a game we both like and can play online together, that might change. That is true. That is true. And if anyone listening has a recommendation for a game that me and Travis could play together online that you think we would like... Let us know, please. Uh, hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever, because um, I'm happy to, you know, fill my time doing fun stuff with friends. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. We, 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 we haven't found one yet, but I am open to new suggestions. Yeah. On that uh, note, ladies and gentlemen, our last little quick thing, uh, because of timetabling, of course, being always against us, we got a teaser trailer announcing a trailer for Denny Villeneuve's Dune tomorrow. Did you watch the teaser trailer? I, I have no interest in Dune. Mm, none? I, none, zero. I, I, I haven't read the books. I saw the overrated, bloated pile of shit that was the David Lynch 1984 version. That is not overrated. No one really likes that. No, I have friends who think it's a masterpiece. The, were they kicked by a donkey? I people there are people out there who love that movie, um, so yeah, and they kind of like, I'm like I, apart from Sting in the winged underpants, um, it's really not much to talk. I, I it's, there's Patrick Stewart in there, man. <laughs> I am look. I mean, everyone has their first flop, and this could be Denny Villeneuve's first flop. Uh, I don't think it is the it is the you know unconquerable mountain. Of filmmaking he's taken on here others have tried and failed and uh you know it just I, I don't have really i mean i will see it probably at some point because his last few films have been so good mm-hmm. um but um 
and he proved me wrong. I was ready to be bored shitless by Blade Runner 2049, but I loved it. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm not sitting at my keyboard going, show me the fucking trailer. Yeah. I'm very um, ambivalent. Mm. The teaser trailer for the trailer was it, it showed nothing. It ha- didn't have any real pop uh, incentive to do it, but I am so keen. Denis Villeneuve, I have complete and utter faith in his abilities. He has pulled together one hell of a cast, so I will be talking about that trailer next week. And if Travis does get around to seeing it, maybe he'll have some views, but otherwise I will probably just go... <laughs> For about three and a half. Oh, I'll probably have a look at the trailer. It's just, it's just like I, I could see it today. It was just like hype bullshit, you know, like yeah. preview to preview. And I'm like, just give me the fucking trailer. Yeah. Yeah. But, it's, a, uh, it's an ad. It's an advertisement for your film. It's an advert for an advert. <laughs> and I'll be curious, like I said, I just, in, in Denny we trust, but mm-hmm. yeah, the actual source material I have no love for. Well, yeah. Still love you anyway. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us on Facebook, on Twitch, on YouTube. Um, There is apparently going to be a slight change potentially on the YouTube side by the end of this month. I'm going to be looking into that. Uh, Might be a YouTube event rather than just straight to the Armchair Producers uh, channel. But um, I will keep you posted once I've read more about that. But I have been George Terran. That has been Travis Croft. We are your Armchair Producers. See you next week. Good night.